The Future by Stefan Molyneux Chapter 42 Ladies and gentlemen, Cornelius said easily, and I was reminded how amazing it was to watch people go from their private personality to their public persona. There is always at least two people in there. Whenever there is a calamity, we have an urge to find scapegoats, to relieve our fear and anger, and to imagine that we can magically prevent a recurrence without addressing root causes. Superstitious societies, which we claim to have outgrown, end up tyrannical because random bad things are always happening in the world. And if we associate random actions with those bad things, we end up controlling actions to the point of immobility, of paralysis, of dictatorship. Lightning strikes a king while a man is dancing, so no more dancing. A prince dies while his servant hums, no more humming. There have been endless disasters throughout human history. Very few have legitimate scapegoats, even to those in the moment who can assess the facts and evidence in the present time. Yet we, who claim to have outgrown historical superstition, are looking for a scapegoat for the cataclysms. Through fortune, fate, or chance, we have been delivered to people who are relatively easy to blame. The president, who sits before you, and his son. However, we have a system of justice precisely because it is so easy to blame people. Disasters bring fear. Fear brings helplessness. And we strive to overcome helplessness by blaming others. The root causes of the cataclysms are well understood, but not definitive. One thing we have learned in the modern world is to not place our faith in any coercive institutions. If the majority of us are good, the existence of government means that we will be ruled by evil. If the majority of us are evil, then a democracy ensures that evildoers will rule. If a minority of us are good, we still end up ruled by the immoral. If a minority of us are evil, those evildoers will rule us through the state. There is no circumstance under which the existence of institutionalized coercion leads to a more moral society. We know all this. This is what we teach our children. I am aware that my client is not on trial for his political actions, but rather his parenting. However, we have to ask ourselves, would we wish to dig up crimes 500 years past if it weren't for our collective trauma of the cataclysms? All who lack self-knowledge are enslaved to their emotions. I submit to you that this 
prosecution is fundamentally psychological. The stories of the cataclysms handed down by our ancestors and made vivid through the records that were kept call out for justice, for vengeance, for punishment. Just because we have only two men to punish does not mean that we should punish those two men. If we were to go back in time and change the behaviors or lifespans of these two men, do you seriously believe that the cataclysms would never have come to pass? It took centuries to sow the demon seeds that resulted in the worldwide disasters. The opposition to rationality, the destruction of universal morality, the substitution of hysteria for reason, the general psychosis provoked by the illusion of infinite resources, itself a result of state counterfeiting of currency, the collapse of the family, the absence of fathers, the understandable inability of single mothers to raise strong sons. We could list the causes all day and still have room for more. Alice raised her hand. Judge Peters, my colleague is literally creating a straw man out of thin air. We are not charging Mr. Staten with causing the cataclysms. Judge Peters looked at Cornelius inquisitively. Cornelius said, I appreciate my colleague reminding me of the charges I'm sworn to defend my client against. I am seeking to explain to the audience, to those who will judge, the psychological causality behind these charges. Judge Peters asked him to focus on the charges. It is a universal principle of justice that we examine here. How much is a man responsible for his moral decisions? It used to be said that morality is a social construct. We have outgrown that, thank heavens. But there is truth in the statement. <sighs> Don't gasp. Give me some room. Visitors to your society may have insights that you lack. Imagine, if we had thawed out some caveman from 50,000 years ago and found scraps of human flesh in his belly. Now, cannibalism is a monstrous crime, so would we charge him for taking a bite out of his fellow man? Imagine we thawed out a father and child from the same time and the child had marks of abuse on his body. Would we charge the caveman father with child abuse? Alice started to say something, but Cornelius raised his hand. I understand the charges. My colleague was about to say that we would not charge the caveman because the caveman would never have tried to hide his abuse or been hypocritical in its application. And I understand that as the root of the charges against my client. But an essential moral element is missing from the case which I believe exonerates my client completely. My client is charged with child abuse because, according to his son and other evidence, he beat his son, neglected his son, and verbally abused him as well. 
The hypocritical element is that he hid all of this from public view and claimed to be a loving father. To our eyes, this appears monstrous and truly damning. However, the essential element I referred to earlier is this. This hypocrisy was ubiquitous within his society. It takes a mere moment of logical examination to unravel this hypocrisy in the present, and arguably in the past, but almost no parents were able to achieve this rational feat 500 years ago. Hypocrisy was the norm, the near-universal norm. To hit in private and be peaceful in public was the modus operandi of almost every parent, the entire world over. All parents praised peace in public and waged war against their children in private. It took the entire length and breadth of the cataclysms for this obvious contradiction to be finally unraveled, giving birth to the modern, peaceful world. The deaths of billions, continents in flames, starvation, disease, war, and literal hell on earth. This is what it took for humanity to wake up from the dogmatic slumber of justifying violence against our children. We all, humanity as a whole, had to fall into hell and burn there for generations in order to finally declare peace against our own children. Yet, we stand here in judgment over one single solitary man for failing to discover what it took humanity centuries of destruction to learn. In order to prove our case, my colleague has to first establish that these beatings occurred, and then that my client had the moral knowledge and responsibility to prevent them, and that his behavior differed markedly from those around him in his time. This is an insurmountable task. We can regret these alleged beatings. We can be horrified by the standards of the past, which I applaud. It is that horror which has built the present. But they were the standards all over the world for almost every parent. We can say that my client should have been aware of the tiny fringe extremist movement of peaceful parenting. But the proponents of such a radical philosophy were expelled from society by the abusers long before they became mainstream. It is really those censors that we should thaw and blame for the cataclysms. Because if peaceful parenting had been allowed to flourish, we would have avoided that endless span of hell altogether. Cornelius paused. My eyes widened. He was either thinking deeply on the fly or giving an incredible simulation of it. We praise ourselves as a just and empathetic society. But empathy is a real challenge 
It is not just divining the needs and emotions of others, but instead putting ourselves directly in their shoes. So let me take you on a brief journey, and then I will sit down. I want you to come back with me in time, 500 years. Your parents are stressed, workaholics, facing a society coming apart at the seams. Massive debt, escalating taxes, foreign attacks, increasing censorship, and growing political violence. If you are raised at home, your mother spends her days panicking over bad news on her phone rather than loving you. More likely, you are dumped in a government-controlled daycare within a few weeks or months of being born, where you struggle to survive in a dangerous and chaotic clan of disturbed children. When you are sent to what was historically called a school, you are taught to hate your culture, your history, your country, your civilization. You are exposed to sexual content at a very early age. The most disturbed children rule your social landscape. And your parents, very likely, get divorced. You are neglected, an afterthought to the fear and vanity of those around you. You are spanked, according to religious misinterpretation or simple frustration. Your property is taken away. You are left unattended for hours at a time. And you struggle to learn how to negotiate with the crazy children around you. You are distracted by video games, which at least provide a semblance of stability, predictability, and achievement. You have no idea how you are going to grow up, find a spouse, start a family. You don't want the lives your parents have, but don't know how to create any other options. Your only potential path to security is political power. Your father is a politician. He was violent towards you, just as your mother was. He opens the door to power for you. If you don't walk through it, you have no future. So, you do. You take political power. You find a wife and have children. The anti-rational mob whose votes you rely on constantly demand that you cater to them, to their every whim and need, rather than spending time with your own family. You have a son who turns out to be quite different. You don't understand him. You have no time to learn how to understand him. And his rebellion is something you would never have imagined inflicting on your own father for fear of his violence. Your entire society is drenched in violence. 
The state commands and controls and subjugates with the power of force. Reputations are casually destroyed through lies. Friends are separated into blind opposing camps. Families and marriages splinter under the pressure of an uncontrollable world. In this violence, chaos, and disintegration, what decisions would you make? With no better examples before your eyes, how would you parent? Cornelius's eyes grew steely. Most importantly, how much free will do you have? We accept that a man who commits a crime under direct coercion is not responsible for his actions. If I force you to rob a bank, it is I who am charged, not you. Five hundred years ago, the whole world was breaking and cracking apart under compulsion. The reason we allow no exceptions to the non-aggression principle is that the historical world is the clearest example of a slippery slope that could possibly be imagined. A slope slippery with blood. Once the state has the power to tax, definition of the state, really, it has the power to create schools that indoctrinate the young. After that, it is just a matter of time before the end. Do we blame citizens for having allegiance to the state that raised them? Do we blame citizens for failing to see that the state is coercion? When to understand that would be to know for certain that their parents voluntarily put them under the control of a coercive organization? My client was raised with violence in a violent society by violent people. That was the language he spoke, the world that he had to survive in. We can condemn him for what he did to survive in a world he never made. Or we can be grateful at the lessons learned from his actions from the actions of almost every parent in his world. This would be like condemning the reptile for not being a mammal, or the monkey for not being a human. There was a slight murmur of laughter. I bristled with anger. Cornelius said, It is unjust to blame a man for his circumstances. And it is unjust to the point of immorality to blame a man for failing to learn what took the rupture of the entire planet to discover. We can mourn the life he had, sympathize with the world he was raised in, but to condemn him will be utterly unjust. Chapter 43.
Judge Peters looked up from his sandwich as the door to his chambers opened. Alice and Cornelius came in. Cornelius said, Judge Peters, I have a concern, more than one, actually. My client, Mr. Staten, is not taking any advice or instruction from me. Judge Peters nodded. Does he want another representative? No, he seems happy with me, but he won't prepare. He won't take any advice. I'm concerned that he might be aiming for a mistrial. I assume his position is well documented. Oh, I make him sign every morning. I've gone over all the consequences. He knows that his refusal to take advice won't affect the legitimacy of the trial. I've told him that he can be cross-examined by his own son, but he doesn't seem to care. The judge shrugged, turning to Alice. Comments? She shook her head. The judge said, Everyone has the right to refuse good advice. Must be one hell of a shock to go from the top of the world to the bottom of the heap in the blink of an eye. Nothing like this would ever have happened in his world. I've always been curious how... No, never mind, inappropriate, he sighed. If your colleague has no objection, and I have no objection, I suppose I appreciate you bringing it to my attention, but we must plow on. Cornelius nodded a pained expression on his face. After lunch, Alice stood up in the courtroom. For my first witness, my only eyewitness, of course, I am calling Jake Staten. The two wide, white double doors opened, and an elderly man strode into the courtroom. He had an air of newly minted vitality, as if his knees had just been replaced. Mr. Staten cried, Good God, you're so old! Jake nodded, his eyes wide. Dad, he murmured. Cornelius leaned over and whispered something to his client. Mr. Staten stood up and strode over to the stand. He sat, comfortable and erect, surveying the crowd. Alice rose and wished him good afternoon. Good afternoon, he replied coldly. It must be quite a shock meeting your son who is twenty years older than you. For all his bravado, a ripple of vulnerable shock ran across Mr. Staten's face. Yes, you have no idea. Alice said, I once played with a VR simulation of my father as a boy, since he said he wanted me to know him before I came along, but I don't imagine it's anything close. Mr. Staten stared at her. As if by a gravity well, his eyes were drawn to his son. He murmured something. Excuse me? He cleared his throat. <clears throat> it is strange when your eldest son becomes your eldest son. There was an exquisite vulnerability in his demeanor, but it vanished immediately. Do you need a moment? I do not. Alice nodded. Could you tell us your philosophy of parenting, please? Mr. Staten paused. That is a big question. Cornelius said, too open-ended. Alice shook her head. We are separated by centuries, Judge Peters. 
Not many people here would know the parenting practices of 500 years ago, and you should never judge what you don't understand. Judge Peters allowed the question to stand. Mr. Staten smiled. Is there no statute of limitations for inconvenient memories? Alice did not reply. He said, My general goal was to prepare my children for the world. The world that was, I suppose. A different world. I knew an idealist when I was younger. Oh, two, in fact. Life did not end well for either of them. Those who want to improve the world are usually the first to go. He smiled self-deprecatingly. I never had that kind of courage. Managing things, I was good at that. I'm getting to my parenting. Be patient, young lady. How can I fit everything that was through the eye of this needle? He gestured at his mouth and spread his hands. There were two poles, I suppose, in my day. <laughs> Listen to me, like an old man on a porch with short suspenders. <sighs> on the one side were parents who wanted to be buddies to their children, like friends or like siblings, I think. They never wanted to displease their children. My wife was a little bit that way. I think a lot of mothers are. But that gives way too much power to the children. They end up ruling the roost, wagging the dog, if that makes sense. And I remember reading somewhere that if you don't give any limits to your children and, and keep making excuses, that's the best way to turn them into criminals. <laughs> he smiled wryly. I know how precious that sounds. I'm on trial for a crime and talking about how to prevent criminality. But that was the way we were the best information we could go on. And I had the example of my friends and relatives when I was a boy, and I was not a very young father, so I got to see how some of that played out before I put my shoulder to the wheel, so to speak. Kids with no discipline, well, they just wasted their lives. Everything was an imposition, Every speed bump, a brick wall. They never wanted to do any paperwork or meet with any lawyers or do anything difficult or unpleasant. They lived their easy lives and just faded into the woodwork. Got nowhere. Or died. That wasn't as rare as it should have been. Ah, drugs were a big issue. We all hung over that canyon to nowhere. My father was, well, one hell of a disciplinarian. You almost had to salute when he walked by. We're not here for pleasure. You made that clear. To be of use, to be of service, well, that requires discipline. You can't be a coach unless you know how to play. And you'll never learn how to play by lazing around. Get up early, make the bed so tight you can bounce a coin on it, shave even on a Sunday, do your push-ups, plan your day, and stick to it. Say your prayers, go to bed early, don't waste time. <laughs> Plenty of time for laziness after you're dead, he used to say. 
And he did it. He made everything for us. Pulled us up out of nothing, 40 acres and a mule, and put us right at the center of American life. Overalls, two tuxedos, two generations. And we were supposed to stay there forever, but I guess we didn't. His voice faltered slightly. The entire audience was fascinated by this voice from the past, this warped window to a dead world. He continued. You seem to have a very pleasant life here, all of you. Maybe our sacrifices were not entirely in vain. To be honest, and with all respect and gratitude for you awakening me, it is a little too soft for my tastes. But I suppose that is the point. My great-grandfather's life, well, I suppose my life would have seemed pretty soft to him. Suppose that is the point. To make things easier for your kids, then nag them for being <laughs> soft. Mr. Staten chuckled. Alice started to rise. I know, my parenting... Here I have been silent for 500 years, and now I am nagged to get to the point. But that's all right. This is a formal place. Place of justice, I am told. I've spent so much time flying around the sky that I'm surprised I'm not being judged in the clouds. He smiled at the judge. Although I suppose it is fitting that your name is Peters. He took a deep breath. As to parenting, well, I was tough. You call this abuse now, which I suppose could be understood. How my father was raised was much harsher than how I raised my son. Perhaps it is supposed to diminish until we get to this heaven, this utopia. He sighed. I wanted to... I wanted my approval to be something that my children strove for or after. <laughs> I suppose I was obsessed with approval ratings myself. But you do have to get the approval of other people in this life in order to succeed. People have to want to eat at your restaurant. Oh, and have you guys tried this one at the top of the tree run by Mavis, was it? <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll withdraw that myself but it really is amazing, believe me. So, I withheld my approval for my children, particularly my eldest. Hello again, stranger. Because he, in fact, had the most potential of all of my children. My middle child was like a horse, strong, fast, but not much between the ears. My daughter, well, it's a whole other situation. Unless you dig her up as well. Sorry. Poor taste. And I did that. Yes, I did spank my children, on occasion. But I wasn't about to teach them discipline while being undisciplined myself. There were a series of steps. Each one had to be followed. It wasn't some random blow from the sky. You give a warning, then another warning. And then you explain why the spanking is about to happen. And then you administer the spanking through clothing 
It was really designed to shock rather than hurt. And then you check in with the child, whether he or she understands why the punishment has occurred. You never did it out of anger. You didn't do it out of hatred. And you didn't do it because of some silly disagreement. Mrs. Staten held up a finger. And you certainly made sure that the child understood the rules before applying the punishment. He craned his head, looking around the gallery. I'm with you all. I hated the parents who just beat the hell out of their children. They were just creating monsters we would all have to deal with for the rest of our lives. He spread his hands again. The kids with no discipline just kind of dissolved. The kids who were beaten just rebelled. They just dissolved in opposition. Instead, same outcome. Me, I've always been for the Aristotelian mean. Alice stood. How often did you spank your children? Mr. Staten's eyes widened. Oh, gosh. I know this sounds like a cop-out, but I'm actually having some trouble accessing middle memories. I guess the <clears throat> cryogenic technology was kind of primitive. I can remember a few instances. One when my middle son was running towards a busy road. Oh, and another when my daughter knocked over a propane lamp while we were camping. Could have set us all ablaze. He wagged a finger towards his son. <laughs> and this one, always hungry, grabbing at things on the stove. A woman I dated when I was a teenager had terrible burns all down her back. That really stuck with me. She, she couldn't get anywhere in life. She was afraid of the beach. His voice seemed to grow unconsciously aggrieved. And yes, we turned the handles of the pants to the back, but he just kept grabbing at them. And it's tough with three kids. They would also do whatever he did, so, so it spread. He turned to his son with a smile. You got to stay up later. You got more allowance. But you were also a template for your siblings. And with great power comes great responsibility. <sighs> there was also a rule about the phone. He was a needy kid. Always wanted me around. So I would try to stay home on occasion. And sometimes there would be very important phone calls. <laughs> Which is funny because nothing seems important now. But then... And he would constantly want to show me something while I was on the phone. And I confess, it created a kind of static in my brain. Oh, man, really frustrating. It was a real high-wire act, my life. You can only explain those kinds of interruptions so many times before you sound like some emasculated house husband. Couldn't have that. And there wasn't much reasoning. That is the young puppy phase of childhood. You just have to train them. But it's a phase, and it ends, like everything. <laughs> Except my life, I suppose. He laughed, apparently self-consciously. There was a strange silence in the amphitheater after his words. He turned around, scanning the audience. Alice said, You never spanked your children in public. I also do not defecate in public either, or have sex. Does that make me a hypocrite? Analogies are not arguments. 
Mr. State inside. I suppose it comes from my managerial experience. Praise in public, chastise in private. I cheered my middle son during his endless football games. I wasn't screaming from the stands at him, though, when he did something wrong. I would talk about that with him in private. You want it to be instructional, not humiliating, so you don't do it in front of his friends or strangers or photographers or the media. That, to me, would be utterly abusive. Alice paused. You said that your children were like puppies, Mr. Staten's voice sharpened. No. You didn't? Don't reduce it to that. With regards to self-discipline, I said that they were in a puppy-like phase. And how long did that phase last? Mr. Staten shrugged. It was different for each kid. My eldest son fought me. My middle obeyed. And my daughter just avoided me. Clung to her mother, I guess. Are you asking me when the last time was I spanked my children? For each of them? Let's just stick to your eldest. Mr. Staten's eyes narrowed. That's a tough one. You're going to ask me, then you're going to ask him. Or maybe he will ask me, apparently works that way now. And if there is a discrepancy, then one of us is lying, or both of us. The fact is that it was not a central or important part of my parenting, so it's like asking exactly how old your children were when they lost their last baby tooth. It's just part of parenting, part of the general flow, not important enough to mark in your brain like a birthday. My wife would remember. She could recite all our illnesses in her sleep. Alice said, just give me a rough age range. He took a deep breath. Whew. He tried to catch his son's eye, but Jake was looking down. I'm going to guess. And remember, some of my memories didn't survive the deep freeze. Before puberty, for sure. Maybe nine or ten? No, it must have been younger than that. Alice waited. Mr. Staten looked at her helplessly. I... I couldn't honestly tell you. Was he over five? I think so. And did you try reasoning with him before hitting him? Cornelia said, asked and answered. He already said that he explained the rules before spanking. Alice replied, explaining rules is not reasoning. Judge Peters pursed his lips. I think we could all use more detail. Mr. Staten paused, glancing at the judge. So I'm to answer? Yes. He blew through his lips. <sighs> Reasoning. That was pretty much the same as pleading in my day. And I don't think I ever saw a different example. Life is busy. I'm everyone here has enough leisure to come and lounge around. And I don't think I've seen one genuine emergency since I came back to life. You're like a bunch of Roman... He laughed softly. <laughs> well, you have time. But that wasn't how it was for us. I guess this is a special case of historical pleading, but you've no idea 
busy we were. I would get up at 5.30 in the morning, before dawn usually, exercise, do emails, social media, breakfast, calls, endless, endless calls. And usually head off to the office before the kids were even up. Sometimes I wouldn't get home until after they'd gone to bed, which I hated. I always wanted to read them a story when they were young. His eyes grew distant. Everything was mad. Looking back, it was a mad life. But I loved it at the time. I frankly don't know how you all (laughs) fill up your days. And even the weekends, there was always some family function or donor dinner. Someone was always having an anniversary or a christening or a birthday. It was just a (laughs) mad treadmill, as I said. There was no time for reason. He smiled sadly. (laughs) Although I suppose you will say that there was no time because we weren't reasoning. But you get the world. You try to improve it. But you can't remake it from scratch. Unless it burns to the ground, said Alice softly, then lifted up her left hand, withdrawn. Mrs. Staten stared at her for a long moment, then shrugged. So, of course... You do try to reason with your kids. But you can't spend your entire life trying to reason with your kids. You have to get things done as well. And I... I love the leisure that you have now. This world without emergencies makes my world look like a madhouse. Maybe it was. Alice said, Of course, you never hit another adult, correct? Mrs. Satan shrugged. Maybe some drunken stuff in my teens, but no, not really. Why did you hit your children, but not adults? Oh, (laughs) I don't know how to say this without sounding insulting, (laughs) but children's brains are immature, deficient in reason, just like they're deficient in height relative to adulthood. Alice checked her notes. What was your grandfather's name? Mrs. Staten blinked. John? And he's, he spent years with diminished capacity, is that right? I don't remember how long it was, but it was a while, yeah. And would you say that John was deficient in reason relative to his adulthood? He had dementia. Alice nodded. So he had a physical deficiency in his brain which reduced his capacity to reason. Mr. Staten stared at her. Cornelia said, we need a question. Mr. Staten said, I'm not a doctor. When I was a kid, I don't know what was wrong with him. But you said he had dementia. He shrugged. That's what I was told. That was the common word, but I didn't diagnose him like a doctor would. But it wasn't some moral failing, right? Something was wrong with his brain, which reduced his capacity to reason. That would be my assumption. Would it have been appropriate for your father to hit his father if his father did not act rationally? Mrs. Staten turned with oddly pleading eyes to Cornelius. His representative walked over to him and they conferred quietly. Cornelius said, Judge Peters, my client cannot reasonably answer what he thought his father should have done about his grandfather's illness. 
Alice snorted. I'm asking... I do apologize for the unclear wording. I am asking if Mr. Staten believes it would be morally right or acceptable for his father to have hit his grandfather for failing to act rationally. Instantly, Mr. Staten said, that would be elder. He stopped immediately. Alice turned to him with laser focus. What was the next word? What were you about to say? Mrs. Staten looked at Cornelius, who looked at Judge Peters. Please answer, said the judge, leaning forward. Mrs. Staten sat silently. Everyone waited for an endless 30 seconds. Cornelius, please inform your client of the penalties for failing to answer honestly. Another huddled conference, much gesticulation, a recess. Eventually, Mr. Staten returned to the stand. Judge Peters asked, Are you ready to answer the question? I am. Please repeat the question. Alice said, Would it be morally acceptable for his father to have hit his grandfather for failing to act rationally? No, because that would be elder abuse. A ripple of breathy sound flew through the amphitheater. Alice said, Why would that be abuse? Mr. Staten said, Well, it's not his fault that he has dementia. Is it your children's fault that they had childhood? I don't understand the question. Is it a child's fault that his brain is immature relative to his adulthood? Of course not. So, if we cannot punish the elderly for their diminished mental capacity, how is it moral to punish children for their diminished mental capacity? Because children are going to grow into adulthood. They have potential that my grandfather did not. So you are changing your answer. Excuse me, I'm doing no such thing. You certainly are. Mr. Staten stared at Alice stonily. Would you like me to tell you how your answer has changed? Asked Alice. Silence. She leaned forward over her white desk. Your answer has changed because earlier you said that you punished your children because of their diminished capacity. When I pointed out that you did not punish your grandfather, or you would not approve of him being punished because of his diminished capacity, you now say that your children can be punished because they have potential, intellectual potential. In other words, it is not diminished capacity that is the cause of punishment, but rather diminished capacity plus intellectual potential. Diminished capacity alone is not enough. Hair-splitting 101. I don't understand, said Alice. An introductory course is called 101, said Mr. Staten coldly. My children are not my grandfather. Different rules apply. Sure, they both wore diapers, I suppose, but only one of them breastfed. At least I hope so. The expected laughter did not manifest. Alice slowly began walking towards Mr. Staten. Let us suppose that there was a course of treatment that helped your grandfather regain his intellectual capacity. Every day he got a little bit better, although it would take years to recover completely. 
would it be acceptable to strike him then if he failed to obey the rules? I get where you're coming from, but please, let's not waste time and insult our intelligence. My grandfather had had his life. He knew all the rules, and they had been taken away from him by bad luck, by nature, whatever. My children were born blank slates, tabula rasa. The rules had to be imprinted on them. The wax steams on impact doesn't make the king evil. So, you are changing your answer again. What the hell? Alice paused after his outburst, then slowly ticked off her fingers. First, it was hitting based on diminished capacity. Then, it was diminished capacity plus intellectual potential. Now, it is diminished capacity plus intellectual potential plus a lack of prior knowledge about the rules. Does it trouble you that you are continually changing your story? Do you know what the word defensive means? Cornelius jumped up. Rhetorical questions. Judge Peter signaled for Alice to move on. She nodded. Earlier, you said that you could not remember when you stopped hitting your children. Do you remember that? Yes. Do you think that we should judge you more harshly or less harshly? based on your lack of knowledge, your forgetfulness. My brain was frozen. Agreed. (laughs) You have an intellectual deficiency outside of your control. At least we have to take your word on that. Do you think we should judge you more harshly or less harshly because you no longer remember when you stopped hitting your children? I, I don't know. This world is new to me. What do you mean? If you come across some pygmy tribe in the middle of nowhere and they ask you how they should feel or or think about something you wouldn't have a clue because you don't know them at all well you are even more foreign than that to me i have no idea how you should or should not judge me i'm just telling the truth all right let us say you have a personal assistant and she does not schedule an appointment Two scenarios. One, you told her about the appointment and she forgot. And two, you never told her about the appointment at all. Would you judge her more negatively if you had told her about that appointment and she just forgot it? I would judge her more negatively, yes. What if it turned out that she had some brain disease which caused her to forget the appointment? Mr. Staten rolled his eyes. Well... And of course, I wouldn't judge her negatively. And, of course, if you had never told her of the appointment, you wouldn't judge her negatively at all for failing to forget that which she had never learned. Yes. So now you are changing your answer once more. Mr. Staten jumped up. Oh, come on! The judge gestured for him to sit again. You have. You are, said Alice, walking slowly closer. Now we have another standard excusing or justifying you hitting your children. You said that you could hit them, but not your grandfather, because they had diminished capacity with the potential for maturity, and because your grandfather had prior knowledge of the rules while your children did not. Now you claim that you would not judge your personal assistant negatively for having no knowledge of an appointment. In other words, if she didn't know something, 
you would not judge her negatively for the inevitable result. Cornelius raised his hand. Judge Peters, I'm getting confused. Try again, said the judge. No need, said Mr. Staten briskly. I did say that my grandfather should not be hit because he used to know the rules and has forgotten them. But that was not the case with my children because I explicitly told them the rules before spanking them. Gave them many, many warnings, in fact. So the two situations are not analogous. Was there a time early in your grandfather's disease when you or your father or anyone really reminded him of the rules but he failed to follow them because of his reduced intellectual capacity? I'm sure there was. So, reduced intellectual capacity can lead one to not follow the rules, even if they have been made explicit recently. Pause. Mr. Staten? Silence. Cornelius's lower lip trembled. Mr. Staten! Why the hell are we talking about my grandfather's dying mind from centuries ago? He's not here. My father isn't here. You're all just... Obsessed with the past, with railroading me and cornering me and twisting my words. The judge raised his hand. Mr. Staten. He took a deep breath. You must answer the question. Mr. Staten stared at Alice for a moment. Repeat. Alice said. Is it possible for a person with diminished intellectual capacity to fail to follow rules that have been explained shortly before. Yes. So this justification, too, for hitting children, fails, falls flat, is invalid. Silence. Every characteristic that you claim justifies hitting children applies only to children even though those characteristics also apply to adults with mental deficiencies. This means that... Do you know what ex post facto reasoning is? Of course, although I know you'll explain it again. Reasoning after the fact. You act, and then you justify. You hit children because they are smaller and weaker and dependent upon you. You hit children because you were hit as a child. You have not processed that pain, that fear and anger. And so you re-inflicted upon your own children, which was a cycle of history that led to the horrors of the cataclysms. You have no moral justification for hitting children. If, in your old age, you had diminished mental capacity, as we all do, and your adult children hit you as you had hit them, you would have screamed that it was elder abuse and called the police. You complain that I insult your intelligence. Do not insult this entire assembly, the entire world, by pretending that your violence towards your children was anything other than the brute exercise of power over them. She turned and pointed at Jake. One of them is still here against all odds. And I would bet a Bitcoin that this is the first time he has heard all of these excuses and justifications for your brutality towards him. We will get an apology out of you, 
Mr. Staten, even if it is 500 years too late. We are here for justice. <laughs>